0: World War COVID. From Weapon World to Peace World. Learner, begin. Infantry. This time around, I have neither served as a warrior nor experienced ground combat, touch wood. But I believe I have had to do so in past lives and I believe so have you. We are all veterans and victims of combat, if only by way of subliminal recall. If you reject my proposal because you refuse to believe in reincarnation or because you insist that civilians, or anyone who disagrees with you, should shut up about war, too bad, so sad. Read on or refuse to, figure it out or not. All I can do is propose it to you. We must taste the blood-acid vomit of war without experiencing it firsthand, take deep breaths of its stench and soak our face in its gore. We must reacquaint ourselves with those horrors spared us by rare good fortune and wisdom this time around. Let's evoke combat from the stories of those who have experienced it for us, as well as from past experience dimly recalled or wiped from memory. That way, we can stop reenacting it today and in days to come, much less often than we've had to in past reincarnations. I can only repeat the story my grandfather told me. He said the sweetest fruit he ever ate, and we lived in Provence where the fruit is good and plenty, were raw onions dug up from a desolate garden plot. Those onions were clotted with soil, and we ate them like apples. The memory made him smile. That when your squad gets caught in an artillery firestorm too far away from shelter, it is best to crawl flat on your belly until your head works under the crotch of the next man in line, then cover his ass with your helmet. How funny they found it when one guy crapped his pants, as happens to one in four combatants or more under fire, this time over the head of the man underneath. They lived through that barrage, scary enough to crap one's pants, and got to cackle about it afterwards. Or my dad's story about catching lice with his tank destroyer recon company under a rotting pier. Or solemnly showing me a narrow, cobble beach at the bottom of a deeply shaded gorge, too steep to climb down into blindly, though there must have been a path somewhere. He never showed it to us and we never went back, even though our home was quite close nearby. His best friend, along with his scout troop spilling out of a landing craft, were massacred in a hail of German machine guns probably nested along the cliff top where we stood, a hundred or so feet above, I was young and small back then, a pebble beach along the coastal highway out on the far right flank of the American landing in Provence, southern France, beyond which the French naval assault group of Corsica got massacred. My dad was a lucky guy. Another good friend of his died after the fall of Dion Phu. He commanded the tank platoon sent to that place, ten tanks flown there in pieces, and him in the lead tank with both arms broken and set in plaster. He died during the death march out to a concentration camp, along with two-thirds of the caged survivors or another story my father once told me, when he was a young lieutenant commanding the point element of a horse cavalry regiment on its way home, heat-drugged after a 1300-mile march from Fort Hood, Texas to Fort Riley, Kansas and back, the last long march like that in American history. The horses at the point of the advance guard got wind of the nearing post and charged over the last crest and into the valley below, drawn to their cozy stalls and out from under the blazing sun and their dozing riders. No doubt a few of those tumbled off, though he didn't tell me and I was too dumb to ask. My father sent word back that everybody had to look sharp because the horses were going to get frisky. I'll bet they made a fine parade entrance after a masterful march. He never said so, but I saw the pride in his eyes. Both of them parsed their stories short and doled them out to me sparingly, even though they knew I would pay rapt attention as long as they chose to speak. Such was the pain of their recall. Let's pull on the muddy boots of an infantryman. On Peace World, every child will have read that kind of thing as ordinary fare, but nothing about military glory. Eight-year-olds will have heard about infantry in school or devoured it as a comic book. But let's go there anyway. Instead of waking up in a soft bed in a warm room down the hall from loving parents, or alongside a suite mate bent on loving, or just shiftless and on your own, you start up from rotting leaf litter at the bottom of a dank hole, roused by non-stop itching and the high explosive roar that has stunned your senses for months, or an ominous quiet that portends nothing good. The horizon rumbles with the distant grumble of heavy artillery, yours, if you're lucky, the other sides or both, if not, surprisingly similar to an empty stomach's growl, except it's shaking the landscape in addition to your shriveling guts. Ravenous for another bite, it releases a trickle of sand into your hole. Beware lest it corkscrew you out of your hole and shred you for breakfast. Nothing you can do about that in any case. You're on your own surrounded by steaming huddles of fellow sufferers buried out of sight. For a fortnight or more, none of you has set aside his rotting shoes or shit-color rags, rested, or bathed properly. If you slept at all, your mortal coma was bathed in sweat, teeming with nightmares and maddeningly interrupted at any moment. The haze of sleep deprivation is your daily lot, as well as that of your officers who decide if you live or die. This damp dark morning is much like the others, sweat-soaked hot or shivering cold for the seasonal excess. Rain and sweat soak your rotting clothing. Who would have dreamt, in the coziness of a tight house, that daily weather could be so savage? Stink fills your nostrils. It is common to every battlefield, a compound of mud or dust, foul breath, body odor and human waste, moldy clothing, food and equipment, high explosive gas and smoke, rotting, seared lumps of flesh of every description, the burst of fresh blood, the sickly cocoa funk of its rot or the roast pork aroma when it burns. For the past hundred years, the common stink has been the inescapable one of diesel smog. Prior to that, the dung of draft and cavalry beasts and the random humankind coated every marching boot. Nothing alive stinks worse than a close column of filthy infantry, except that of overworked horses with weeping sores. The toxic effluvia and taboo fluids you would shun in peacetime will make up your body bath during war. Its stench and racket will fester in your psyche until you die. Any hint of them in your remote civilian future will trigger fugues of post-traumatic stress. Your body aches all over and gut-wrenching diarrhea trots along behind you, half from dread and its immune-suppressing pall and half from the fecal breakfast you just wolfed down. Your muscles are laced with lactic acid, the milk of overwork. You cringe from a maddening skin crawl of bugs, the combatant's faithful companions, and a sticky, stinking glaze that coats your skin. You and your buddies stink of ammonia sweat. Your hyper bodies don't carry fat any longer and burn muscle tissue instead. Nobody acknowledges your embarrassing sores and chronic complaints except with ridicule. You will have to cough, sneeze, piss or shit during moments of danger and imperil your friends in so doing. You have lost more weight than would be normal or healthy. Your exhaustion would flatten you under normal circumstances. Any doctor worth his salt would take one look at your sorry ass and prescribe a week of bed rest and rich food. Not here, not now. Frontline rifle units are usually too poorly manned to permit such luxuries. You're always hungry and thirsty. Blood-warm, chlorine-stinking water-noisse eats you rather than quenching your thirst. Your appetite disappears the moment you open the next can of dog food combat rations. For every torment the genius of your nation's combat logistics spares you, a dozen more plague you worse and without repair. Whether you suffer from a clinical addiction or not, the false promise of alcohol and drugs will make you suffer like the damned. You would do almost anything for a few swigs, pills or shots of escape. Nonetheless, neither food nor drink nor drugs, those musty horrors available in your pigsty, offer any real consolation. Only the fitful males can console you now, a precious word from home. The mail clerk can just as well toss you a Dear John letter letting you know your mate went crazy from loneliness and threw herself at the next jerk in line, or your family and friends were massacred during a recent martial atrocity back home and have abandoned you forever. Instead of endless commutes to an almost bearable job, you face the snarling machinery of industrial hate that stretches out beyond the horizon, the entire genius, fortune, and flower of youth of some random country whose citizens you never met and against whom you never held a quarrel, entirely, devoted, to, your, personal, extermination. Gulp. Your side's firepower is just as menacing as that of the enemy. Frontline troops can be massacred by either side. Mechanized forces are hotbeds of disaster. Both sides' artillery, tanks, and aircraft are perfectly designed to shred your delicate transparency. Disease and accidents will kill you just as dead as combat, often sooner. Death is not picky on the battlefield. Danger lurks everywhere, as well as quiet execution by firing squad or a squad leader's pistol if you tarry too long in a place of safety. No relief or security awaits you except in the tidy rows of a military cemetery or convalescent ward. Otherwise, in a common grave carved out by bulldozer, or some dank, scream-filled and stinking aid station grotto, from first aid to the three volleys of a funeral salute, by the book with military precision. Instead of schmoozing with familiar and reasonable people under the constraints of law and civility, you confront lost souls as filthy and miserable as your own. Instead of a coterie of friends and acquaintances nourished by mutual kindness, They are a bunch of smelly, brutish, and crude compulsive neurotics with whom you share nothing but common misery motivated by petty spite and perfectly reasonable terror. If you're lucky enough and possessed with the dignity of courage, they will treat you like a noble brother during a crisis, share their last crust of bread and sip of water with you, risk their life to save yours, and treat you like dirt at other times. Your tender feelings and bruised bodies are at each other's mercy. No choice in the matter. This black morning promises calamity for you and your guys. You have become sly creatures by now, as superstitious as cannibals and feral wary of everyone else. If you find yourself in a pocket of relative security, combat may seem to be a lesser worry. You will be bullied by rear-area lifers handpicked for cruelty and determined to keep you cowed. Perfect brutes you would neither party with behind the lines nor trust in combat, for endless rounds of meaningless, filthy, and exhausting chores. Their only response to your demand for dignity, reflexive insult, brutality and another perilous assignment. Their relative safety dictates your peril, their meager comfort, your misery. Imps lining the entrance way to hell, goading the damned to their doom, their primary goal is to drive you back into the fight. Like other repressive institutions in peacetime, like the silly lining peristaltic intestines, they flutter chow along their way while wringing the last scrap of vitality from it. Your commanders are more intent on the enemy's destruction than your well-being. If they are good, they will work themselves ragged to see that you are fed and housed to minimum standards. They may briefly regret your bug-like distress and extinction, then carry on with their plans. Otherwise, they won't give a damn. Indeed, they'll seek their promotion by promoting your distress without sharing it with you. A good officer will lead you into hell and bring back as many of you intact as possible, by his coolness under fire, his compassion and know-how, especially miraculous good luck, a bad one on the contrary, will get you killed by his elite laziness, stupidity, snobbery, and cowardice. There are no bad troops, only bad officers. The good ones form elite troops before sacrificing themselves, the bad ones survive their lethal ineptitude too often. That is what makes a general's career and earns him more stars. His honorable record generations ago as a small unit combat leader, and his political cunning since, have brought him promotion. Like good wine soured to vinegar, His noble task devolves into road mechanics, oppress or replace subordinate commanders when their torn compassion paralyzes them. Needless to say, barring catastrophe, he's headed nowhere near peril, he and his drafted three-star chef. His primary task is to dig you and your friends into some untenable spot, then send you on endless marches into greater peril until you become casualties, so much lost baggage. There will always be a stream of anonymous new replacements to fill in and get used up. General George Patton wasn't happy unless a few of his many lieutenants got shot recently. That is a general's duty, glory, and reward. As for civilian masters of war, things are even less decent. As frontline infantry, the less you know about that stuff, the better. Did you know that the last four successful Republican presidential candidates negotiated with the enemy behind the back of a Democratic incumbent president? Look it up for yourself in the public record, Johnson vs. Nixon with the North Vietnamese, Carter vs. Reagan with the Iranians, Clinton vs. Bush the lesser with the Taliban, and Obama vs. Trump with the Russians. Treason, high crimes, and misdemeanors, the only way Republicans can win a straight-up contest, at least until the reactionary Supreme Court puts its thumb on the voting scale. The neutral media would crucify any Democratic candidate who dared do such a thing. Just like Obama could never get away with one-tenth the crap Trump gets away with routinely. If I sought a security clearance with one-tenth of Trump's moral baggage, they'd laugh me out of the office. Who gave that jerk a security clearance anyway, long before he was subject to executive privilege? Apparently, you don't need a security clearance if you're a presidential candidate, even less so if elected. Your best buddy will die before your eyes or lie horribly mangled in your arms, and their replacement and their replacements afterwards, and likely yourself in the long run. After witnessing their agony and washing your hands in their blood, you will bury them in a common grave, one of hundreds you had to dig, that took hours of grueling work to scrape away the clay, the rocks, and stubborn roots at your feet. Digging a proper grave or a decent dugout by hand takes a staggering amount of work. Lemon-sized submunitions bounce into the bottom of fortifications, down dugout steps and around sandbag walls before they go off in a blizzard of many detonations, shredding those cowering in terror underneath and inside kamikazes or technicians based on the other side of the planet can pilot vehicular and drone-borne explosives, and soon artificial intelligence, without any likelihood of escape. The following irreplaceable citations amputated thanks to the anti-Quote Gestapo. The million-dollar wound, as suffered by Hollywood heroes, is caused by a high-velocity military bullet, undistorted and still encased in its metal skin, which passes straight through relatively elastic muscle tissue and out the other side, making a pencil-thin tunnel and leaving a star-shaped exit wound only about three-quarters of an inch across. Even a clean penetration of the heart, liver of major blood vessels is usually fatal, and brain damage normally has devastating results even when the victim survives. Authors note, bulletproof armor and modern surgical techniques permit the survival of many wounded soldiers who used to die quick, those struck in exposed portions of the face and neck, leading to the brain and cervical vertebra. Another larger group gets concussed by explosives and suffers an impairment thus more and more wounded veterans live out the rest of their lives more or less vegetative and or paralyzed yet another bunch of high tech survivors lose unarmored appendages arms and legs hands and feet apart from yawing and bone strikes the amount of damage a bullet causes depends upon another effect known as cavitation in the best case new healthy tissue will grow inwards all around the debrided wound in the worst case sepsis will occur gangrene, and the patient's prospects become seriously worrying. Martin Windrow, The Last Valley, Dion Bien Phu and the French Defeat in Vietnam, De Capo Press, Perseus Books Group, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 2004. Originally published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson, London, England, 2004, pages 533-534. No weapon frightens me as much as the shell. It's only the detonation which always seems the same, a feeling as much as a sound, a hideous suck roar thump that in itself, should you be close enough, can collapse your palate and liquefy your brain. Anthony Boyd, My War Gone By, I Miss It So, Penguin Group, New York, London, 2001, first published by Doubleday, New York, 1999, page 244. The most clichéd but accurate metaphor for the sound of incoming shells in flight is that of an old-fashioned steam express train rushing past a few feet away. The results of massive destruction, the ruined hulk of a torso, the crimson rack of ribs, the glistening entrails, limbs ripped away and scattered, a severed head, have a charnel house squalor that denies all human dignity. On chilly evenings at Dian Bien Phu, the warm, gaping body cavities steamed visibly, and the opened up bowels gave off a stink of feces. Martin Windrow, The Last Valley, OPCIT, pages 371-374. to Or check out southern Lebanon or Palestine or Syria within the last few years. Am I really in the third millennium of the Christian era on planet Earth? And our Bronze Age barbarism still prevails. It comes down to physics. What movies cannot render is that, often, the most lethal aspect of an explosion is not the scattering of projectiles in its blast, But the tremendous shockwave that blast releases. While more advanced armies have developed firebombs that literally suck the oxygen out of a targeted area, quickly exterminating all within, the more common form of death in such circumstances is the protracted ordeal of carbon monoxide poisoning as the building around the victim slowly burns. And then, of course, there are those who linger for a time, who don't succumb to their wounds until the next day or the one after that. Scott Anderson, Moonlight Hotel, Doubleday, Random House, 2006, pages 168-170. to End of amputated quotes. Otherwise, you will have to lug their broken, lead heavy body to an uncertain fate in the rear, half willing that they croak and relieve you of the struggle to save them. The loss of precious friends will twist like a dagger in your heart. Later on, you will shun such painful friendships. The buddy you save is a lucky one. More likely, your friends will move out, under orders to ignore the wounded the next volleys of enemy fire will mow down your heroic medics. Your wounds will pin you to the ground until some wandering enemy ends your misery with sadistic enthusiasm or queasy hesitancy and strips your body before he moves on. In your own good time, you may die screaming in agony or quietly bleed to death all alone. Why bother with anyone outside your vermin-infested tribe? Anyone beyond your narrow squad, friend or foe, combatant or non-combatant, will assume the phantom profile of inhuman rates whose suffering and extermination are matters of relief, indifference, or derisive sport. Most of all, you will despise those pasty civilians you were sent here to defend. Wishing them a fate worse than your own, the black magic of your envy may worsen theirs. Sooner or later, you and every survivor not a sociopath born will become post-traumatized zombies, at which point, nothing much will matter until you've received months of professional help and perhaps never again. You will never recover fully. Your only real assignment is to kill and, if possible, not be killed. You will be invited to commit every crime you despise. Nothing less than your complete acceptance of this criminal degradation will let you escape this hell with perhaps your body intact but your soul in tatters. Your hatred will blind you. The screams of agony of the enemy will become music to your ears, along perhaps with the wail of wretched women and children caught in the crossfire. Plunder will become an indoor sport a pastime from the interminable boredom of military life, the endless boredom of military life, the unending boredom of military life, repeat ten thousand times a day. Any decency you once prized will be ripped from you, and every perversion of justice and compassion will become routine. Not until then will you fully grasp the monstrosity of war. Unfortunately, too late to do anything about it except compound its misery. Your options will narrow to mere survival and perhaps not even that. Everything else will become empty words and meaningless sensations, compared to the combined rush of combat survival, fraternal loyalty and the random verdict of life or death. Stripped of the pastels and smiling rainbows of civilian life, you may become addicted to your black and white dilemma and unfit to resume the trappings of peace. In that case, your beloved society, ancient practitioner of social triage, will quietly snuff you out once you resume its embrace, without pause, mercy, dignity or regret. Your disappearance will not even be counted among the casualties of war, much less honored. More veterans die that way than in combat, dying alone and forsaken by everyone at home. From 22 to 28 suicides per day in 2019 USA. These days, more children die from war than soldiers. It has probably always been so, but never reported without censorship to the civilian world. Psychopaths would rather harm the innocent wholesale with the consent of an ignorant public. Tomorrow's wake-up will seem much like today's and yesterday's and the one the day before, unless some new disaster probes your courage, sanity, and endurance, and likely leads you to collapse, convulse, and perish. Instead of operatic appeals to God, to duty, honor and country that you'd imagine you'd utter heroically, your last gasps are likely to be the whimpers of a toddler in pain, Ma, Mommy, Mama, begging for a miraculous reprise of her loving embrace, to please, please come soothe your agony with her recalled love, your last plea for the comforts of the breast and the womb. It hurts so bad. Your precious adult vitality will pour out of you with your blood. Nobody will pay much attention to you for very long. The army is set up to dispose of your body with the least fuss. If you are a parent, your death will worsen the misery of your children and spouse and the agony of your parents. Those who grieve you will shut down sooner or later, whether they survive into victory or in defeat. Then they will pass on and your life cast into oblivion will be forgotten. Your misery will become an abstraction, less significant than a footnote in history books that have buried so many throwaway lives in military jargon, fantasy heroics and socio-political nonsense. Less meaningful than a crushed ant or a moth in the flame. Your passionate, pristine existence, born in pain and hope and tenderly nourished by parents and guardians, will be shoveled into the weapon world jive drive. Endless use, reincarnated in the children to come, will have to retrace your absurd path into oblivion. So tell me, dear learner, how can the reassuring routines of peace and progress prepare us for this long serial agony, compared to which Christ's afternoon crucifixion might have made up for its agony by its brevity? Only gradual and hypnotic conditioning from birth, backed by thousands of years of obsessive regimentation, courtesy of weapon civilization, prevent us from abandoning this charnel bedlam screaming our lungs out and defying the psychopaths who want to poke our tender extremities into their patriotic blaze, like weenies crackling in a campfire. It would be better if there were no more war, only peace. Not no combat at all on this planet, at least for a while longer, but less now and a lot less in the future. Please God. learner, Peace World. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago our fathers brought forth, on this continent, The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Abraham Lincoln, November 19, 1863. URL Reference Comment Mark Mulligan at Comcast.net